good evening, good day, good afternoon, good night, whatever time it is, loyal listeners of the old W&W, it's your good friend, Marcus Eddie Jr. again, coming to you live from the 1821 studios here in the Shire for our penultimate episode of season five. And uh, as always, I'm joined by the not quite completely gray yet, although he dyes his hair, so we're not sure, co-host with the most, DJ Gagnon. Hey, everybody. I can't wait. It's 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 the second last episode of season five. It's amazing. How do we get this far? I have no idea. Um, you know, I think I texted you that as of last episode, we are over 100 hours of content available to listen to, and that is genuine terrifying mm-hmm. um, likewise with some of the other podcasts I've done for work and things you could actually listen to me starting at midnight on a Monday and you would not finish until 12 noon the following Saturday <laughs> no one deserves that don't do that if you're thinking about doing that please get help there are people available that they can help you um, but I, I don't recommend that uh, but here we are. We're back for the, the second to the last episode, and we're going to be talking about our infamous console wars episodes. And we're going back quite literally to Genesis, to the beginning, uh, the Atari 2600 versus the Nintendo Entertainment System. Or is it the Famicom? Well, we'll get into that. But first, uh, what did you do this week, buddy? Oh, man, it, it's just been all baby stuff. Um, I mean, the, the nursery is done, the office is done, but now we're like cleaning out the house. We're like, I just bought a dolly so I can start hauling up all the giant heavy shit out of the basement. Um, where I rented a dumpster to arrive. Uh, I think it's going to arrive to my house the day we drop the last episode of the season. If my math is correct. Um, and then I've got like a solid week to just dump and run. I've got like a bunch of shitty lumber. I've got two CRT televisions. I've got a ton of building supplies the guy left behind. I've got contractor bags lined up in the garage to chuck. Like just so much shit to get rid of. Um, so it's all it's all like it's all happening. And it's all happening in a good way, but like it's all like really, really busy right now. And then it's going to be hopefully like a week or two where we can just relax for a little while before labor happens. And then there's going to be, you know, the what I've been referring to as the wild blue exhaustion. Yeah, I saw some of the uh, the pictures of your lake trip you you put up on the uh, the tiny beans because, you know, I'm in the know here. I know people, um, you know. I know Holly is little and all, but are you sure there's only one baby in there? You know, I um I'm sure there's only one baby, but there's there's other things that have led to her like she's measuring she was measuring at 35 weeks, which is like four more weeks than we are actually at at week 31. So it it was just yeah, it's um she is a t- tiny human carrying a large baby. Um I, I don't know. I we gotta get through labor and see how everything goes. There's extra fluid, and I I could do a whole episode on on things I've learned about labor at this point. 
I was just impressed. You know, you read things or you hear things and they don't click. You know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. I've often heard people when their, um, you know, wives or significant others are pregnant, they'll say, oh, she's about ready to pop. And you just go, eh. No, she's about ready to pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a stark contrast, too, because usually she's wearing these, like, nice flowy dresses that you can't really tell. But she was in a bikini swimming at a lake uh, on Monday. And, yeah, you could you could really tell. Well, I mean, there's also the fact that, you know, the last time I saw her, I could have legitimately used her as a cricket bat. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's like, ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, it's... There's like a lot of stuff, but like none of it's necessarily bad. It's just a lot of busy things. Um, But what about you, man? What you been up to last week? I I think I saw some photos of a potentially finished garage. Well, uh, I don't even know what phase it is. I was going to say phase one is done, but we're way past phase one. The bulk of it is done now. It has power. It is wired. Um, You know, God bless my uncle. He's a, a union electrician. My, my mother's brother, and he and the old man actually go way back. They actually go back before uh, he and my mother. Uh, they went to Votech together, and that was actually how my old man met my mother. Not that any of you care, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're still buddy-buddy after all these years. So uh, my uncle's still an electrician, and he was working five days a week at whatever the hell job site he's at. And then Saturdays, he was coming down and putting in half days at the new uh, laboratory that we've built, for no pay other than Pepsi. <clears throat> and because he doesn't really drink anymore. So just, you know, all the Pepsi he can choke down. And it's finished. And so I went and inspected, and the cars are in, and we've begun moving some of the tools in. We just have to get the bulk of our equipment and spare parts. Uh, it's, good God, it's, it's probably going to take the entirety of the fall and most of the winter to get all the shit we have put into one location. But it's there. Uh, <clears throat> I was able to work on the IROC a little bit this weekend. Still outside. You know, that's the ultimate irony. I've waited 35 and a half years of my life to have a garage and to go, ah, we don't have to thrash outside anymore. Well, a garage of our own. We've rented in the past, but, you know, regardless. And now we have one, but it's already filled with two cars. And so the third car, I still had to work outside. <laughs> um, but, you know, it wasn't anything major. It just, we had a, you know, had a flat tire of all things, you know. Even uh, fun toy cars are still susceptible to stupid car problems. Uh, but got that fixed, changed the lug nuts, changed the wheel centers, changed the valve stem caps, basically rebuilt the entire wheels all the way around while I had it out. I said, fuck it. When I have the jack out, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do all of them. So that was, you know, Sunday, Monday. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, we've got one week left in this season, so probably by the time we start season six in whatever form that's going to be, uh, we'll have some fun garage updates. But... It's exciting. It's getting exciting now. I am really excited for you, buddy. Well, thank you. What, good sir, are you drinking? Uh, well, I I went to our favorite uh, encrypted distillery on our podcast here. Um, a buddy of mine brought me a bottle of Black Jupiter uh, Apertif Liqueur from the Tamworth Distillery. I must at this point step in and say that despite the fact that we've talked about them three weeks in a row now, we are not actually sponsored Mm -mm. by them. No, I feel like we need to have like our own regular segment checking in with this bonkers distillery. I, I swear like 
a- anyone who's like even remotely close to the region of Tamworth, uh, Anytime I tell them I'm into whiskey, they're like, "Oh, you gotta go to uh, you gotta go to this uh, Tamworth Distillery," and uh, you know they keep popping up in our whiskey news. They keep popping up, and uh, I, I I haven't actually been to the distillery yet. My buddy brought me this bottle uh, as a like, "Hey, happy almost baby present," and uh, it's it's an aperitif. Uh, so for those of you playing the home game, uh, there are two French terms that we we play with here when we talk about liqueurs. There's aperitifs and digestifs. Aperitifs, the way I like to remember them is, uh, what do you have before a meal? You have an appetizer. You also have aperitifs. Uh, so an aperitif is a, uh, a liqueur that you would eat before a meal to kind of get ready for the meal. And then a digestif is what you would drink after a meal to kind of help you uh, like settle down and, and you know help your digestive system go. Um, so this is a really great walnut liqueur. It's black walnut. It's very, very dark. Uh, like I, I'm holding up the light. I can't see through it. It is extremely dark and, uh, it is really good. It's got, you know, it tastes, it tastes like walnut. It tastes a little bit woody, but not quite in the same way that, that whiskey is. Um, it, it, it's, uh, I, it's hard to describe. Um, I mean, it does kind of taste like a walnut, obviously. Um, but there's some warm spices to it. It's, it, it's, it sips a lot more like a wine does than, than a hard spirit, which makes sense. It's only, uh, 40, 45, 48 proof. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I definitely recommend it. I'm having it tonight over some ice uh, just by itself because, hey, you can do that with liqueurs. Um, but you can do some really interesting things with uh, black walnut, and I'm going to save that for Tools of the Trade. What are you drinking, buddy? Well, I am actually uh, mixing it up a little bit. I am drinking a cocktail, uh, but fear not, loyal listeners. I've not gone completely off the... Reservation. It is a rye cocktail, and uh, you know it's one that has a fun little uh, New England connection. You know, of course, DJ still in the Shire, and I did actually live in Massachusetts for a few years before I returned here to the wild frontier that is Pennsylvania. So I'm drinking a Ward Eight, which was uh, a cocktail created in Boston in 1898 in their Eighth Ward. You know, really original. Uh, and it was created to celebrate the election of Martin M. Uh, God, I can never pronounce this guy's name. I've heard this story before. But Martin M. Lomancy, Lomany, L-O-M-A-S-N-E-Y. I can never pronounce his name. But he was a uh, big political boss in the city at the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, 1898, 1900, 1905, 1910, yada, yada, yada. And it was uh, created by the bartenders in the Lock Ober Cafe, which uh, actually was founded in Boston in the 1870s and actually functioned as a bar all the way until 2012, unfortunately. I actually was there once back when I was living up there. 
it's the story is much more interesting than drink. The story is basically, you know, <clears throat> this uh, Mr. Martin here, this political boss was so crooked, everybody knew he was going to win. So they created a drink to celebrate his election before the election even took place. And there's stories of him handing out pre-written ballots while giving people this drink at the bar. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of fun. Um, the drink itself, in the immortal words of my good buddy DJ, it's fine. <laughs> um, it's essentially a rye version of a whiskey sour. Uh, the, you know, you have your rye whiskey, you have lemon juice, you have orange juice, and then you substitute the simple syrup with grenadine. And since this is a turn of the 20th century cocktail, much to DJ's dismay, you are actually supposed to use roses because that's what they had at the time. Mm. And, I mean, again, it's fine, but it's just basically a more citrusy whiskey sour with a little bit of a rye bite at the end. The grenadine gives it sort of a hot pink coloring, so it looks like a Cosmo and tastes like a whiskey sour. Um, but, you know, it's not bad if you have the stuff at home, which, you know, most people have orange juice, lemon juice, and probably a little bottle of grenadine. Throw it in with your favorite rye, mix it up a little bit. I actually use some of my uh, sherry cask-aged rye to try to give it just a little bit more of a flavor profile. You can't really tell. You get the rye bite, but nothing else really. It's just all citrus all the time. But it's a fun story. That is fun. I I feel like I've made a word aid as part of one of my cocktail classes, but I don't think I've ever brought it to the podcast. So that's that's pretty... It's pretty good. I I feel like it's more of a me cocktail than a you cocktail. It is. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is not the worst thing I've ever had. And I mean, if somebody come, you know, if I ever go over somebody's house or whatever, and they're like, hey, you want a war date? I'm not going to say no. But I don't think I'm going to be putting this in the rotation here at home. Yeah, fair. All right. You hinted at your tools of the trade. You segued very nicely to it. So... What do you got for us? You know, I I want to talk about black walnut because I feel like it's a thing that just keeps popping up in this age of like new and exciting bitters that we have. No longer are we just relegated to patent medicines, you know, your your aromatic bitters. Uh, we've got all sorts of crazy bitters in the markets now. I, I've talked about uh, gin bitters. I've talked about botanical bitters. Uh, I've even talked about how there's uh, a small subculture of people making their own crazy bitters. And I wanted to kind of talk about this black walnut thing because it just keeps popping up. And it it isn't a, as far as I've been able to find, a historical cocktail ingredient. But it is uh, something that's been popping up a lot more uh, in in cocktail culture. And we're starting to see it pop up. Uh, I I feel like all the rage used to be like uh, like cinnamon. I feel like I saw a lot of things like back in the early two thousands of like cinnamon being introduced to cocktails, and it was kind of there was like a minute where it was just really popular. And now I feel like it's black walnut. I see black walnut all over the place. There's new black walnut bitters popping up. There's black walnut liqueurs. I'm sipping one right now. And I kind of wanted to figure out, like, okay, why is this 
so cool. So I'm drinking this liqueur, and I'm like, okay, I, there's some wood here. There's some, there's a little bit of chocolate. It's it's nutty. Uh, you know, maybe this weird peanut butter whiskey craze is, is kind of contributing to it. So I figured I would pull up uh, a recipe for black walnut bitters, and we could just talk about it really quick. Uh, so this recipe comes from littlevillagemag.com, uh, and they advise combining the following ingredients in a mason jar, 12 ounces of shelled walnuts, 16 ounces of eight to, uh, 80 to 100 proof vodka, one teaspoon of cacao nib, half a teaspoon of allspice, eight whole cloves, a quarter ounce of dried black walnut leaves, a quarter ounce of black walnut hull, and a half teaspoon of white pepper. Put it in a cool place for two weeks, filter it out, you got bitters. And that's pretty interesting to me because I feel like uh, all too often there are extremely proprietary bitters that we don't really know what goes into them. You know, think of your Angostura, your Peychaud's. Um... I love the idea that they're pairing it up with chocolate. I love that this is kind of a fall taste with the allspice and the clove and the pepper. Um, I think it works really well. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot more recipes popping up for black walnut old fashions, black walnut Manhattans. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of pairing uh, in recipes with black walnut with star anise. Um, and I, I've even seen, uh, some old fashions recipes that replace the sugar with maple syrup. So it really does kind of seem, I, I don't know if this is a thing outside of New England. I don't know if you're seeing black walnut pop up all over the place. It's definitely a thing here with Tamworth Distillery. Uh, but I've got at least two, maybe three black walnut bitters that have gotten in little kits at this point. Yeah, I have actually uh, had a black walnut Manhattan. I want to say last fall. It, it's it comes and goes around here, but it is uh, definitely more seasonal. Basically, when people break out their nutmeg, they break out their pumpkin. Uh, you start to see nutmeg. Uh, I didn't try it, but I remember seeing a nut, uh, black walnut uh, martini, which if I was a martini guy, I'd probably be into. But the Manhattan was pretty good. Um, you know, it's. Again, it's one of those things I'm not, it's not going to be one of my go-tos, but every now and then when I want to mix it up, it ain't bad. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty tasty. It's going to be a quick and dirty um, tools of the trade because we get a long topic today. But yeah, Black Walnut, definitely give it a try. I'll agree with that. Uh, what do you got for uh, whiskey news today? Well, you know, I, I know I drove you a little nuts because I did a recipe with uh, Rose's Grenadine. <laughs> But uh, I found something today that, one, is basically your dream come true, but two, ties very nicely into our topic, sort of. I can't wait. So there is a franchise that we have talked about on this show that you adore and that I don't really get the hype over. Okay. And, uh, well, I'm just going to read you the headline. And this is uh, an article from our friends over at Whiskey Raiders. And the article is from uh, yesterday, as we record this, August 1st. And the headline just says, Game hard, but drink responsibly. Assassin's Creed bourbon has arrived. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> uh, 
so there is a new company, and reading this press release, I can't tell if they are a distillery or a gaming studio or a conglomerate that owns both. Um, I'm going to call them Anthem Studios. It's not spelled Anthem. There's a U in there. Uh, but they are advising gaming and whiskey nerds alike to game hard and drink responsibly with a new bourbon branded after Ubisoft's popular Assassin's Creed franchise. Uh, this is part of their gimmick to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the original game, which makes me feel very old because I can remember playing the original game when I was living in Massachusetts. So it's been 15 years apparently since I've been living in Massachusetts. <clears throat> Uh, but it's made by the Tennessee Legend Distillery, and its official title is the rather wordy Assassin's Creed 15th Anniversary Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Uh, it's a four-year-old bourbon bottled at 90 proof, and it can be found at retail locations in uh, basically all over Tennessee, but you can also get it available online. It's a little pricey. It's $70 a bottle, uh, but... They uh, claim that it has notes of rye, spice, wheat, character, whatever that means, <laughs> cherry, vanilla, and an oak finish. Uh, they are going to follow this run with an Assassin's Creed spiced rum and an Assassin's Creed vodka. Now, hmm. the bourbon and the rum I kind of get tying into the game. The vodka, I don't know. Was there an Assassin's Creed in Russia? Did you kill Rasputin in one of them? I don't. There might have been stopped, a smaller one, yeah. All right, because I was going to say, I stopped playing pretty early on into the series. Uh, but there you go. If you like that, find yourself a bottle. The The label's pretty cool. It's all gold and has the, you know, the Assassin's logo with a 15 put in it and has what I presume is Ezio with his back to you. So. Oh, my God. I want this so bad. So, yeah, Assassin's Creed bourbon, because why not? <laughs> I mean, it does look very cool. I'm looking at the bottle right now. It looked good on a shelf, if nothing else. It would actually look really cool on a shelf with all the games. I feel like I feel like that's my big struggle living here in New Hampshire and trying to find these cool things is like it's not like a video game release. You can't pre-order a bourbon. Oh, but actually you can. And uh, I actually pre-ordered. That's how I got that baseball bat uh, rye a while ago. I pre-ordered it. Uh, they're already taking pre-orders for the rum and for the vodka, which I know isn't the same thing. Uh, but I did look on the website uh, earlier today when I was doing my notes, and they would deliver to Pennsylvania. So if they're delivered to us, they'll deliver to you. Yeah, I, I got to find this. Anywho, uh, we, I can't, I can't spend this whole episode searching for this whiskey. We need to talk about, uh, <laughs> how much your ass is going to get handed to you by this console war. Yeah. Well, yes, in a way, <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't argue, uh, with the fact that Nintendo, I mean, Nintendo obviously still exists and Atari, much like Sega is just producing games now. <laughs> However, without Atari, none of this would have happened. And without, more specifically, without Atari's mistakes, <laughs> which we'll talk about, uh, Nintendo didn't have the, the big void to get into. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So uh, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm going to go first because one, the Atari was first, yeah. but two, I have considerably less than you do. <laughs> I had to cut myself off because there's so much information about the NES. It could be its own like three part series. Yeah, I cut a well. I, I cut a lot out of mine, but I still thought I went long. And then DJ's like, "Hold my beer." But so all right. So we will start with. The Atari 2600, or as everybody, you know, it's also known as the Atari VCS, the virtual computer, video computer system, or as everybody simply just calls it, the Atari. So it was launched in September 1977 as the Atari VCS, as I mentioned. It had nine games at launch. Are you ready for some of these amazing titles? I can't wait. Air Sea Battle. Yep. Basic Math. No, that's nothing. Blackjack. Mm. Combat. Uh-huh. Indy 500. Uh-huh. Starship. Uh-huh. Street Racer. Yeah. Surround. <laughs> He's speechless uh-huh. on that one, folks. And the Video Olympics. Yeah, if you have the Indy 500 game today, it came if you have the original thing that it came with, came with a special set of controllers that had little mini steering wheels on them. If you have all that today, basically you can retire. You could just sell all those and retire. What about what about like Pong? Well, we're gonna get to that. That was part of Video Olympics. You're getting ahead of me. Uh, okay. Uh, it cost one hundred and ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents in nineteen seventy seven which running that through our friend, the handy-dandy inflation calculator, was just under $900 today. Sweet Jesus. I thought consoles today were expensive. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Uh, The prototype, which is actually in the Smithsonian, I believe, was named Stella after the brand of bicycle that several of the computer techs that were building it rode. It's kind of a fun little fact. And it actually was funded uh, by everybody's favorite punching bag, because they suck, Warner Media. <laughs> and you're going to see today, folks, that terrible business decisions is not a new Warner Media uh, trope. So uh, they saw the you know early Magnavox Odyssey. They saw the Channel F. They saw a few of the you know early video game systems, and they said, there's some money here. So they bought a majority stake in Atari and basically funded the system. And I had to look this one up, but it does indeed beat out the PlayStation 2. It has the longest production life cycle ever. It was introduced in September of 1977, and it did not see sales until the middle of 1992. That's impressive. It is actually pretty impressive. Uh, That being said, the actual sales numbers are simultaneously not impressive by modern standards, but are incredibly impressive when you realize that it cost the equivalent of $900 when it launched. Mm -hmm. It sold uh, just over 30 million consoles. I have one uh, upstairs I'm very proud of. So it specs. It was a cartridge-based system, you know, basically uh, codified the way we played video games for two decades. Contrary to popular belief, it was not the first home console to uh, have interchangeable cartridges. That was actually the Channel F, 
but they sort of perfected it. They got it down to a science. And this actually originally hurt their sales because the public did not understand the idea of buying games and changing out games. You have to understand a lot of the home consoles available in the late 70s. Basically, they had all the games such as they were loaded onto the system and you just picked in a menu and uh, some of them even came with little overlays to make the game look different. Like you can get a version of Pong and you could put a little ice hockey overlay on your TV monitor. So it looked like you were playing, uh, you know, uh, air hockey. Or you could put a little soccer overlay on. And there's, oh, look, there's like 15 games on here. No, it's the same fucking game. <clears throat> yeah, amazing. So people didn't understand the cartridges at first. Are you ready for this? It has the MOS technology 6507. That's the chip. Yeah. And that chip puts out a whopping 1.19 megahertz processing speed. <laughs> the maximum memory on a game cartridge, four kilobytes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although most of them didn't go over two. I've, I, I've got some numbers for you later, buddy. The RAM was a blistering 128 bytes. <laughs> Not kilobytes, not megabytes, not gigabytes. Bytes. Bytes. Uh, It could render sprites in either one, two, four, or eight pixels. Uh, But there was a maximum of 160 pixels on screen. Uh Uh-huh. Those pixels were fucking huge. (laughs) You know, we we were talking uh, a little bit earlier off air. About bits. You know, it was the big thing when we were growing up. The NES is 8-bit. The Super Nintendo is 16-bit. The N64 was uh, 64-bit, etc., etc. They don't do bits anymore, uh, probably because it would be ridiculous. I, going by conventional math, the PlayStation 4 is something like 295,000 bits or something ridiculous. But if you're using that system, the Atari was 1-bit. <laughs> And this is actually pretty cool, and unfortunately, it's why my Atari is not hooked up now, because it doesn't work with digital televisions in this way. But you have to remember, 1977, you still had these big tube TVs, you know, the huge cabinet-style televisions. And they didn't have AV ports the way we think of them. Mm-hmm. So Atari created what they called the TIA, the Television Interface Adapter, which uh, if you're a listener, roughly DJ and I's age, you remember was a little box that you hooked to your TV and hooked into the Atari and it had a switch on it. Basically it was, you know, channel three or game or, you know, boom, 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 and you had to throw the switch. And what this did was this was actually a little television transmitter. Mm-hmm. And the Atari actually broadcast its own signal through this box to be picked up by the TV's antenna, which is kind of fun. That is kind of crazy. The original 1977 to 1980 version was actually built for either color or black and white televisions. It had a switch on top. You could just reach over and flip depending on what you had. So, uh, you know... Basically, it was going strong, you know, through the uh, 
late 70s into the early 80s, they had a few revisions, a few rebadgings, which we'll talk about. But then you come to the decline and the great video game great video game crash, easy for me to say, of 1983. Now, and I cut a lot of this out. Yeah, we, and it was a good we, thing I did too. We can both agree that this is a topic that could be a three-parter, right? Oh my god, this is so fascinating. It is. I <laughs> honestly on par with when we did uh, Prohibition. Like, yes. holy crap, I didn't realize how much of video game culture was impacted by the video game crash of 1983. I wasn't even born. No, and it's so fascinating to just, you know, you look at the numbers and basically an industry died. Mm-hmm. So I know DJ's going to talk a little bit more about this. I'll just give you some of the basics and DJ can fill in some of the numbers. And then eventually later on, we, we definitely need to do at least one episode just on this because it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the end of 1982 and then throughout 1983, the video game market just completely cratered. Overall industry sales dropped by 40%. So, you know, just literally they lost essentially half of their sales within the span of a year. And it wasn't just games weren't selling. Since they weren't selling, this is your era of big toy stores. You had Toys R Us, you had KB, you had whatever the hell that big one was in New York, FAO Swartz, I think. They would actually send unsold shit back and say, hey, yeah, this doesn't sell. We need to put new shit on our shelves that's going to sell. Give us our money back. Mm -hmm. So it was like a double whammy. You have all this unsold inventory, and then you have to pay the retailers for it. Uh, Atari alone, over 82 and 83, lost $892 million in the 80s, which is $2.7 billion today. This caused Warner Brothers to dump Atari, <laughs> and the company had to lay off over 35% of its staff virtually overnight. Uh, they laid off about 3,300 people. They had about 11,000, and they laid off about 3,300 uh, other companies, just their video game divisions anyway, closed altogether. Magnavox was one of the biggest ones. They shut down. Colecchio got out of it and then came back in, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so some of the reasons, there was just a glut of other, other consoles. You had the Intellivision. You had the ColecoVision. You had 87 different badged versions of the Atari, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. You still had the Magnavox Odyssey and a few other things. You just had all these consoles. Plus, this is the rise of early computers, early home computers. You also had the initial uh, third party and studios. They broke away. It was actually was a lawsuit. A bunch of people left Atari and started a studio and started making games. And they're like, you can't do this. And the government goes, yeah, yeah, you can. (laughs) And once that door was open, you know, it basically, think of the way the Wii was. I mean, DJ and I both love the Wii. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of shuffleware. Oh, the- my God. I mean, I, at such a point that we didn't see, like, I mean, you and I also enjoy the Switch. The Switch has a lot of bullshit on that store. Yes. And, but just imagine you walk into, you know, a Toys R Us and you mm-hmm. go to where the video games are. And out of 10 games for your Atari, eight of them are the worst Switch Wii games you could possibly think of. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, when it, when it's all digital, who the fuck cares? Like, you know, you will you can pan through 100 games in 30 seconds and be like, okay, I want to get this one specific thing. 
you're looking at these shelves. There might be 10 games in that shelf. There's fucking slim pickings. Yeah. Uh, you also had unlicensed games, uh, which weren't approved, which weren't, you know, technically allowed. And so they didn't go through the proper Q and a, so they might not work. They might not finish. You might put them in, they might break your console. And then you're going to write a letter to Atari because this is the eighties. And they're going to say, cool, what game did you, what happened? And then you're going to tell them and they're going to go, oh yeah, that's not an official game. Sorry. You also had some rather offensive games come to market. (laughs) Um, are you familiar at all with Custer's Revenge, DJ? No, but I have to imagine it's not great. Um, well, I won't go too much into it because I don't want to push the limits of the uh, explicit tag. But let's just say, uh, well, there's no other way to put it. It's a rape game. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interactive. So there you go. Uh, beat him and heat him was slightly better in that the acts being portrayed were consensual, but, uh, it involves eating. I'll let you figure it out. <laughs> Jesus. And again, these, you know, it's like, oh, this is for the Atari. And, you know, you're going to have your mom who are, you know, who's buying whatever. They're going to go, well, I don't want my son or daughter to have a system that has that on it. And justifiably so. They also had way too many licensed games. You know, it's literally a joke now, although the recent Spider-Man games are pretty good and, you know, GoldenEye for the N64, but they're pretty much the exceptions, not the rules. Licensed games suck. And the reason for this is you have to pay so much money for the license to begin with that the development's going to hurt. But also the license holder gets to dictate a lot of what you can and can't do. So you kind of have to follow their whims and kind of have to make their game in a lot of ways. So you had so many just shitty-ass licensed games that were just, hey, well, this is something people like. Let's slap a label on it and get it out there. And the game sucks. You also had many shitty ports. Uh, The Pac-Man version for the Atari, I have it. It's hideous. The graphics are terrible even by Atari standards. The sounds don't make any sense. It looks nothing like even the arcade game at the time. You have the legendary E.T. game for the Atari, infamously legendary. Now, DJ, you know roughly how long it takes to make a video game, right? Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. You know, for a AAA game today, you're looking at years. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it was a lot shorter of a time span for the Atari. But the E.T. game is still legendary, and I believe it still holds the record for the shortest build time from literally conception to release in stores. Wow. Would you believe me if I told you it was less than six weeks? Yeah, I would. (laughs) And it still wins many video game awards for the worst game. Of all time. All of this led to terrible uh, customers just did not buy into video games as a thing. They're like, this is just a scam. This is a hobby. They, they just stopped buying them altogether. There was so much unsold stock that just over 750 uh, new unopened un- unsold cartridges for the Atari were buried in a dump in New Mexico. 
And this was always one of those fun things that as a kid you heard and you're like, oh, it's just a rumor. That's just a myth. No, no, it happened. Atari always kept saying, oh, no, they're out there. And then finally in 2014, somebody got a permit and actually dug a bunch of them up. And they're like, they exist. And everybody's like, they, they, they told you they existed. <laughs> they told you where to look. <laughs> but for some reason, it was always considered an urban legend. Uh, the market did not recover really until 1986, but 85 was the release of the NES, and that helped, and that's where DJ is going to pick it up. But mm -hmm. really, it was a solid three and a half years before video games even became a thing at all in America, again, on any level. So the different versions of the Atari, we'll run through them quick. The original 1977 was the Atari VCS, as we said, the video computer system. In 1982, the console got a slight redesign, and it was renamed to the Atari 2600. Uh, you also had the Atari 2700, which was a version with wireless controllers. Some sites say it was just a prototype. Some say a handful of them got released. I don't know. I've never seen it. The Atari 2800 was the same system, but just in Japan. It was a special Japanese market release. You had the 2600 Junior, which was a smaller under $50 relaunch, basically after the video game crash when the NES came out and proved video games would work. Uh, Atari said, well, look, why are you going to pay all the money for an NES? You can get a 2600 for less than $50. And uh, that was internally, they called it 2600 Junior. You had the Sears Video Arcade, which literally was just an Atari 2600 that Sears bought and changed a few stickers on and sold exclusively in the Sears stores and in the Sears catalog. I have a few, a few of my games in my Atari collection actually say Sears Video Arcade because they're exactly the same. It's just a label change. Huh. Uh, you had the Sears Video Arcade 2, which was a 2600 Junior rebadged to sell in Sears. And then separate was the Atari 5200, which was their second system. It basically was the Sega Genesis to the Master System, if you will. But it was backwards compatible. So that still could play a 2600 games. The 5200 lasted less than two years and only sold a million uh, systems and then was replaced once again by the 2600. I'm not surprised. <laughs> So some games for you to check out. Uh, DJ mentioned earlier Pong. Uh, it was originally part of the Video Olympics, which was just like 15 versions of the same game. Uh, that came out in 1977. Uh, another launch title from 77 was Combat, or as I used to call it as a little kid, The Tank Game. Mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the greatest Atari games. It still holds up to this day. Drunken Invisible Tank Combat is the balls uh breakout the game everybody loves was no pun intended a breakout hit in 1978 of course the big smash hit the first killer app if you will for the atari came in 1980 and that was space invaders my personal favorite it's a great game mm -hmm. uh 1980 also saw adventure which was the first I wouldn't say RPG, but the closest thing to one that you would get. And it's also recognized as having the first ever Easter egg in a video game. Yeah, Adventure set a lot of precedence. It did. It's actually uh, 1981 was, oh, uh, what was that? As a computer scientist, Adventure is often referenced in like history of computing classes as setting a ton of 
like IT and computer science related precedents that are like go above and beyond just the video game industry. Yeah, no, it was it was a big one. Um, you'll see in my picture this week on social media, I have a couple of video game history books uh, in the background in my shop. The one actually has a whole chapter just on adventure. It's a big mm-hmm. deal. 1981 uh, was the launch of the old man's favorite game for the Atari, Asteroids. Nice. <laughs> I can remember when I first got my Atari, it needed a little TLC, it needed a little soldering, it needed a little help. And I had to run to, and I'm showing my age here, I had to run to Radio Shack <laughs> to get a few spare parts. And when I came home, I was, of course, still living at home at the time. When I came home, my father was sitting alone in my bedroom holding the Asteroids cartridge going, is it fixed yet? <laughs> I can picture your dad doing that, too. And then I didn't get to play the Atari that night, and I was the one who fixed it. Uh, <laughs> 1982 was Pitfall, just a fantastic platformer. And then 1983 is one of my personal favorites, uh, gem of my collection for any system, the Kool-Aid Man game. Is it, is uh, it as good as Cool Spot? Oh, it's better. Now, the gimmick with the Kool-Aid Man game is you couldn't buy it. You had to send in Kool-Aid points. Remember those when we were a kid? Oh, my God, yeah. You had to send in so many Kool-Aid points. And basically, you're in a maze. It, it, it's kind of a Pac-Man ripoff. You're in a maze, but you play as the Kool-Aid Man. But when you get the you know equivalent to the glowing pieces from Pac-Man, uh, you power up. And when you power up, you could, oh, yeah, and go through the walls of the maze. Which <laughs> is cheap. It's glorious. It's amazing. It's one, probably my favorite Atari game just for that. So there you have it. A very, very, very brief overture on the Atari 2600. I still have one. It's unfortunately, well, it's hooked up, but it doesn't work because digital TVs don't read the little transmitter in the back. So don't throw away all those TVs you have, DJ. Save one of them. <laughs> um, but this is, uh, and this is another thing we could do a whole episode on. This is the one legitimate argument for emulators. Yes. Uh, The technology that we have today is literally advancing so much that you can't play old technology. And there's been a a few re-releases. Basically, they made like the version of the NES Classic. Atari actually had a few of them come out even before that that has a bunch of games loaded onto it and has an HDMI port. But other than that, there's really no way to play these games on a modern TV or a modern monitor. It's true. All right. So take us to who won. Well, uh, I feel like the, the the story with the NES is that uh, it started in Japan and then Nintendo watched Atari fail and went, Huh, interesting. Took some notes and then cleaned house. Yeah. So uh, let's get into it. So arcade games kind of had this like golden era in the 70s into the early 80s. And Nintendo had some early success with arcade games. Um, Radar Scope, Space Firebird, and Hellfire were, were three of the big ones that they had. But really what what got them into the limelight was Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong, yep. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong. Everybody knows Donkey Kong. Everyone's played Donkey Kong. Uh, the OG jump man jumping over barrels. And they had such a big success with Donkey Kong that they were like, hey, what if 
we made a home console that could play Donkey Kong because nothing at the time, uh, and, and eventually I'll share, eventually we will find that there were consoles that came out shortly before the NES launched uh, that did have the ability to play Donkey Kong. But at the time that they started designing uh, the NES, uh, or what would become the Famicom, uh, in around 1979, there was no home console that could, uh, that could play Donkey Kong. It didn't have the power. Uh, so there was a, uh, a game called Galaxian in 1979, which kind of proved out, um, a, a newer way of, designing the video game hardware and rendering things. Uh, Galaxian moved the industry uh, further away from bitmap rendering, like Space Invaders, and more towards a hardware sprite rem- rendering with a scrolling background. And that that is hon- honestly a lot of what side-scrolling video games became for a good while until we got into you know the polygonal era of like N64 and PlayStation. Um, Donkey Kong was in 1981 it just it was wildly popular in the arcade scene but couldn't be played at home and nintendo was like well rather than try to compete rather than try to get it to work on these other consoles rather than uh continuing down this competition in the arcade space what if we just made our own and so development began uh, in 1979 by uh, Masayuki Umora, who headed up the project at Nintendo. Uh, it was named Project Gamecom, uh, which uh, Nintendo loves their project names, but, you know, pretty generic back then. Uh, I like and, project names, too. We were it, talking about this this week. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, and over the course of its development, it had a lot of competition. We talked about just the pure saturation of the market with all of these consoles, uh, but to name a few, you know, obviously the Atari 2600, the Magnavox Odyssey, the the Epoch uh, Cassette Vision, and the ColecoVision uh, were kind of its big competitors. Uh, as they sat down to design this system, uh, some different things came to light. Um, they decided to bring in the D-pad uh, from the Game & Watch devices that Nintendo had produced, and that's where we get Mr. Game & Watch. Uh, for those of you young whippersnappers uh, wondering where that character from Smash Bros. came from. And uh, they, much like every video game console that came after the NES, uh, they launched at the lowest price point they possibly could, but left themselves some room for expansion. Uh, so they created the Famicom expansion port. Uh, it was a 15 pin port and eventually would go on to be used for uh, a modem which fucking bonkers mark that the nintendo entertainment system had a modem yeah all the uh sega dreamcast fanboys are in shambles right now yeah uh the famicom disc system and the famicom keyboard because at this point when people were thinking home consoles, they were still very much stuck in the mindset of this is a personal computer that just happens to play games. Yep. Uh, the Famicom light gun, which everybody the gray knows. one. Yeah. The gray one. Uh, 
Um, the family trainer, the uh, some specialized controllers came out later, uh, and eventually that port would be used to power things like Rob, the robot operating buddy. Uh, there was a a, a one off system uh, in 1975 called the TV Tennis Electro Tennis, and uh, it had a wireless broadcast system. Uh, I, and I think this might have been much like the Atari had with the, the the broadcasting system. And they decided to not do that to keep costs down. A lot of things with the NES were to keep costs down. They decided to go 8-bit instead of 16-bit uh, to keep costs down. Um, the the It was 8-bit with a picture processing unit graphics chip, which is kind of like when we talked about the Genesis, and the Genesis had that, what was, it was the 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 super secret upskilling uh, upscaling thing that they they were like oh but it's also super more powerful with this thing we're not going to tell you that doesn't really do anything. Um. All right, so uh, the NES uh, or the Famicom, we should say the Famicom uh, started a long-standing Nintendo tradition of unveiling their shit at their own uh, conferences. So Nintendo held their own conference and unveiled the Famicom at their own conference. Uh, It released in 1983 as the Famicom, and its launch games, there were only three of them to start with uh, in Japan. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. Which I didn't... I don't remember Popeye, but that's kind of hilarious. Yeah, that's... One of these things does not belong. No. Uh... They also, um, in 1984, Nintendo established uh, a model for third-party licensing. And the standard licensing was a contracted uh, 30% fee to Nintendo for every third-party game sold, consisting of a 10% as a licensing fee for the console, 20% as the production cost of new cartridges. It ended up becoming an industry standard I believe we're still using some form of this agreement for for third-party licenses today. Yeah, very similar. Slightly less restrictive, but you can definitely see the the basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, the Famicom was rebranded as the NES and launched in America in 1985. We're going to get into that. Um, But let me talk a little bit about the hardware. Uh, So its CPU is an 8-bit core running a blazingly faster than the Atari 2600 1.79 megahertz. (laughs) Uh, It had much more onboard RAM, two whole kilobytes. Yeah, that's quite a bit more. Yeah, it swapped in an NTSC palette that supported 64 simultaneous on-screen sprites. And the picture processing unit uh, had, again, 2K of video RAM. So lots of really good stuff. Uh, it came with two hardwired controllers. The early Famicom uh, was made to look more like a toy. So it, it did have the white and red, what we now consider retro Nintendo color scheme. Uh, when it was launched as the NES in America, it was launched with the, the, uh, the gray color scheme that we're more used to seeing, the gray, the blue, and the purple. Um, well, it, it was gray. It was gray and lighter gray and dark gray. Um, and I, 
if I remember right, the actual NES light gun was orange. The yeah, in America, was gray. It was orange. Yeah, yeah. So they started experimenting with colors on peripherals. Uh, so Atari ultimately, uh, Atari and Nintendo were in contract negotiations to release the Famicom here in the U.S. And there was kind of this weird deal that fell through. It's kind of like one of those like weird Marvel what if episodes. This is like a video game what if. And uh, Atari was paranoid and saw that during like in between the time that the the Famicom came out with with Donkey Kong as its launch game and Coleco came out with their own console uh, Coleco licensed Donkey Kong from Nintendo and released it on the ColecoVision. Uh, Atari took this as a sign that Nintendo was doing some backroom dealings with Coleco uh, and basically completely turned them down. Uh, this was not true. Nintendo really did just want to work with Atari. Um, but this Nintendo kind of took this as an indication of maybe we're not ready to launch this in the U.S. And it was actually a really good move uh, because the video game of Crash of 1983 happened, and it was, I, I mean, ultimately the tagline here is a a complete and utter market saturation of these shitty third-party consoles that nobody wanted to play anymore. Uh, ultimately, the video game Crash of 1983 was ended by the launch of the NES in the United States. Now, it didn't ha- it didn't end it immediately. It was about six months to a year, depending on who you talk to, for the NES to get enough market saturation to revive the home console video game market. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what Atari and shitty U.S. Uh, console creators brought to the table and crashed, Nintendo fixed. Uh, which is kind of the the interesting tagline here. I do kind of feel like Atari got the the rough end of the stick. Atari well deserves its place in video game history, and some of those games that you see, we we sometimes don't even think of them as as video games anymore. Like they are, they are like the generic. They are the trope. They are the the, you know, the thing that you take for granted, the, the the shitty mobile game you play for 20 minutes, but they were all revolutionary at the time. And Nintendo built off of that model. The NES, uh, and this is where Nintendo gets really smart. Uh, they saw that the home console market was dead. And they went, you know what? We're not ready to release a home console in the U.S., what if we instead bolstered the the you know the flailing arcade industry and released an arcade system instead? And so in 1984, they launched the Nintendo VS system or Versus system. Uh, the Nintendo VS system did take its own cartridges. You couldn't go buy these cartridges; they were distributed to arcade owners. Uh, and it was a massive success, and by massive success, it sold ten to twenty thousand units. Uh, it had its own line of versus games, uh, like versus baseball, versus Donkey Kong, versus Pac Man, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and ultimately, 
Nintendo used the VS Systems launch into the U.S. to do a ton of market research on what other companies did wrong, what Atari did wrong. And then it came back around in 1984, 1985 and began to launch into the market of home consoles. And they they brought Nintendo to America uh, as Nintendo of America. And uh, they basically did a ton of research to find that a big part of the problem was the third-party consoles, but also the third-party games. Uh, I mean, I as Mark was talking, I was looking up Custer's Revenge. Woof. That is yeah. a, that is horrifying. Um, and yeah. that's the kind of shit that Nintendo walked into this video game industry, this home console industry in, in the U.S. and said, we're not allowing that shit. So they launched in 1985 uh, as uh, rebranded as the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, and I am glossing over a ton of history here. We could do a whole episode just on how clever Nintendo was while they were working on getting this system into the U.S. Um, ultimately, they they had a pipeline, much like we see today where a game will launch in Japan and then it'll hit North America and then it'll hit Europe and, and uh, Australia. Uh, it, it was the same sort of thing, but it hit console, console, console. So a game would be launched on the Famicom, and then they would use the Versus system in the arcade to test it out for the American market. And if it did well on the Versus system, they'd release it for the NES. Uh, the NES in America launched with a lockout system. Uh, this is where we get the Nintendo seal of approval from. Uh, there was a hardware lockout system to prevent unauthorized software. This was very. This may have been the first real example of DRM. Um, and this lockout system made it so that a third party had to license through Nintendo in order to get the the bypass uh, chip put on their cartridge so that it could be played on the NES. So the NES couldn't get bricked by third party games. Now I'm sure there might have been a modern market. Um, I'm, I didn't look up in uh, any, nope. any modern. I was going to say, but, this is the interesting part. Do you know who not only broke the lockout chip, but then successfully won the lawsuit after Nintendo sued them? I don't. Atari. <laughs> of course they did. Under their brand Tengen. And I don't know how true this is because I don't study Japanese, but I've always been told that Atari supposedly roughly translated to Czech and then Tengen, which was the company that the subsidiary that they founded after they cracked the NES was supposedly meant checkmate <laughs> because they thought that was going to be the end of Nintendo. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, by 1986, Nintendo, uh, the NES was doing blazingly well in the United States. Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi uh, was, was quoted as saying, in 1986, Atari collapsed because they gave too much freedom to third-party developers and the market was swamped with rubbish games. Holy crap. <laughs> what a statement. I mean, it's true. It's, it, it is true. Uh, they did not hold any punches. 
Uh, first known advertisement for the NES was in the 1985, uh, a 1985 issue of Consumer Electronics Magazine. And the advertisement said the evolution of a species is now complete. Uh, everybody's uh, favorite little Nintendo robot, Rob, uh, was used to market the NES. And a, I think something to the degree of like 60% of NES users that were polled in the, in the survey back then uh, specifically bought the NES so that they could play with Rob. Uh, Rob didn't really have a whole lot of utility. There were only really two games that Rob could play and they weren't very fun. Uh, but the marketing with Rob was so good that that Nintendo was able to separate itself from what America thought of as home consoles and pitch itself as a toy. And by the time, you know, America turned around and realized, oh, crap, we've got a home console again, it was already popular. Uh, everybody in the U.S. thought it was going to fail. Literally everyone. There, there were a ton of really nasty quotes. My favorite one was, hasn't anyone told them that the video game industry is dead? Um, despite all of that, it launched uh, specifically with uh, Gyromite, which was one of the two Rob games, uh, and Duck Hunt, and 15 additional games were sold separately at launch. Uh, Ten Yard Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land, Excite Bike, Golf, Hogan's Alley, Ice Climber, Kung Fu, Pinball, Soccer, Stack Up, Tennis, Wild Gunman, Wrecking Crew, and finally, Super Mario Brothers. We, we end up with the, the first entry in, in our beloved franchise here. Uh, and it, it was wildly successful. Uh, Nintendo's quote is saying in 1986 that it had sold nearly 90,000 units in nine weeks during its late 1985 New York City test. Uh, over the lifetime of the console, uh, the NES sold 34 million units in, in uh, America, uh, 61, almost 62 million units worldwide. Uh, and and um, less than 20 million of those were, were in uh, Japan, which, I mean, still pretty impressive considering, well, Japan's much smaller than the U.S. Yeah, seriously. Um, the Legend of Zelda launched in 1987, the year I was born. Uh, was the first NES game to sell over one million cartridges, uh, and those uh, none none bu bundled. Uh, ultimately, uh, the NES's lifespan was killed by the launch of the Super Nintendo, uh, the Sega Genesis, and the Turbo Graphics sixteen by nineteen ninety. Nintendo continued supporting it uh, into nineteen ninety five. Uh, so. Games to play, keep an eye out for, for these because a lot of these are the entry entries into uh, some of the franchises that have persisted today. Uh, so Super Mario Brothers 1 through 3, uh, the, the original Legend of Zelda, and I believe Legend of Zelda 2. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, The Adventures of Link. Uh, the original Metroid, Ice Climber, Donkey so good. Yeah, yeah. 
Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Donkey Kong 3. Balloon Fight, which is one of my favorites. So good. Yeah. Uh, Duck Hunt, Ghosts and Goblins, and Kid Icarus. So, yeah. I'll also throw in there, if you're looking for a really fun game for the light gun that is still small money and pops up on eBay from time to time, Barker Bill's Trick Shooting. Mm. Basically, it's a bunch of carnival side games uh, using the zapper. Yeah, I mean, not everything was amazing on the NES. That one was pretty good. I remember my buddy Ryan had an NES growing up, and he got a Star Trek licensed game to play with it, and uh, the game was unplayable. We legitimately couldn't figure it out, and the damn controller only had four buttons, five buttons. That is the way the Knight Rider game was. I never owned it, but you know, back in the day when you rented video games, there actually <laughs> was an independent rental place uh, not far from my house, and that was a game I would consistently rent for my NES. Uh, and I could never figure it out. You would just drive and drive and drive and drive, and eventually you'd run out of gas. Woof. <laughs> but, you know, it was Knight Rider and Kit talked to you, so. I don't know. I was like five. <laughs> Of course. The one interesting thing, and, you know, we don't really have time to get into it, um, but we definitely should do a, a, an episode on the, the crash of 83 and the, the rise of the NES. But it, it, the NES changed not just the culture of video games, but it helped kind of usher in a new culture in America. Because in the mid to late 80s, there was a very staunch anti-Japanese fervor in America. Oh, yeah. I read about that, and I, I wasn't sure whether to touch on it, but shit got racist, folks. Yeah, I mean, there literally are stories of uh, the early Nintendo workers, like, unboxing the NESs and loading them in a store, and people are like, oh, are you working for, you know, racial epithet, racial epithet, racial epithet? I hope you all fall on your asses. You know, I hope you lose everything you own. And you don't just see it with this. If you watch the first Back to the Future, uh, Doc Brown makes all these jokes about, why would I build this car with parts from Japan? Ah! And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, and it's... Uh, so, really, the NES was one of the first things that people are like, oh, yeah, all right, the Japanese tech industry is actually really good. Hang on. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean... I feel like there was probably something to be said here for the fact that we're less than... We're about 40 years after the um, the start of the Japanese internment camps for World War II. Yep. Like, people were very clearly still alive who remembered, you know, the, the anti-Japanese fervor from world war two. So, you know, I, it sucks. It's, it's a part of video game history that I, you know, I don't love thinking about, but it, it, it bears repeating, right? Like the, um, I think the, the Japanese internment camps ended in the U S in 1946. So the NES launched 39 years after that. Yeah, and to look at it another way, the crash, now admittedly the NES came after the crash, but the crash was 40 years after Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. 
And so you're still going to have people that remember Pearl Harbor. You'll probably have some people still alive that survived Pearl Harbor. Uh, and, you know, things were always fresh. You know, my, my father-in-law tells the story that his father, who served in World War II and admittedly served in the Pacific Theater, uh, was not happy when they bought an early Honda. And it was Ryder, or no, it wasn't a Honda. I'm sorry, it was a Datsun. Yeah, it was, you know, that was about this time. It was 80, 81, and, you know, they brought home a Datsun, and things uh, things got testy, <laughs> what I understand. So it was it was all very real, and it was still uh, an exposed nerve, shall we say. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I mean, shit, shit got racist, but ultimately the NES did so fucking well in the U.S. market that it just blew all of all of that shit apart. So I, I feel pretty good about saying the NES won this console war. Oh, yeah. But uh, I I think that takes us out, buddy. Um, you know, it, this was a great console war to, to research. Uh, you know, I I don't think we need to declare winners here. I think we just need to, to do an episode on 1983 because that shit was amazing to research. Yeah, and there's um, several great books. There's The Ultimate uh, History of Video Games. There's uh, Game Over, the history book, not the novel that DJ often recommends. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure there actually is just a book called The Crash of 83. Uh, there is just loads of different uh, websites and articles. I mean, far be it for me as a historian to recommend Wikipedia, but if you want just the who, what, where, when, uh, the Wikipedia on the crash of 83 is pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please give us a subscribe. We are one episode away from the end of season five, and we are going to be coming back in some format for season six. Uh, We're not quite sure what that's going to look like yet. Um, But give us a rating if you like what you hear. Uh, Pre-save us out there. Um, We are online, uh, thewittenwhiskeycast.com. You can get in touch with us to let us know about whiskeys you'd like us to review uh, at thewittenwhiskeycast at gmail.com. Question mark? (laughs) Question mark. Um... Yet we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes. Uh, We release at 8 a.m. every Friday, except uh, I guess it would be this Friday and next Friday would be the last ones for the season. Uh, And, you know, normally here I would ask Mark about the topic, but I think we've already got a topic. Do we want to keep it a secret for next time? Yeah, I mean, I I think so. Uh, We'll keep a little bit of suspense. We'll end the season on a cliffhanger. I'm excited, uh, both for the topic, but also everything that's going to come about. All the ancillaries, shall we say, (laughs) without giving anything away. Uh, But also because, um, you know, to do the research for this topic coming up, I literally need to clean out my bar room. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been putting that off and putting that off and putting that off. So I'm excited for that too. I love that so much. Yeah, I I basically just get to go through my my uh, Kickstarter feed. Yeah. Uh, Of course, thank you so much to Nuno Henry Silva for intro and outro music. We'll make sure to send you to uh, his cloud 
uh, SoundCloud in, in our show notes. Can't talk today too much of this liqueur. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess until next week. Cheers. Salute.